Welcome to the Deskbound Therapy Podcast, hosted by David London. David is a posture and mobility expert, yoga teacher, and certified online trainer. This podcast is about empowering deskbound professionals, how to live their healthiest life, and move pain-free. Now, let's dive into this episode. The biology of pain is never really straightforward, even when it appears to be. Yep, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Rehab science, moving pain-free with my buddy Tom Walters, Dr. Tom Walters, a.k.a. Rehab Science. Welcome back to episode 27. Super excited to have you here. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. I'm excited to get on here and talk a little bit. And, uh, you know, I love that quote because somehow I always get into the weeds of pain with people. So, uh, you know, it's just a good one that highlights the complexity of pain. And I'm sure we'll get more into that. Yeah. So do you mind sharing a little bit about your background for the followers who haven't heard of you before? Sure. Yeah, I'm a a physio. Uh, I'm out here in Santa Barbara, California. I, uh, you know, I was uh, studied exercise science in uh, undergrad, and then went to went and did the DPT at Chapman University in Southern California. And I'm a, I've been practicing for 13 years now, pretty much uh, solely in outpatient orthopedics. I finished PT school in 2007, and uh, I've had kind of an eclectic career. It's all been pretty much in ortho, but I've uh, done some sort of private practice clinic stuff, uh, travel PT, did some time with Cirque du Soleil. Uh, I taught kinesiology for seven years um, at a college here in Santa Barbara. And uh, now I'm pretty much, you know, I've had rehab science going for three years and most of my focus now is on growing that and I do some cash pay clinic practice uh, stuff. How did you get, you know, oh, outside of physio, I married, I married a girl from my PT class. So uh, another physio. So you'd think we work on each other more, but that doesn't really happen. two daughters uh one is uh eight and the other one is six nice nice that's uh, you have a lot of experience in physio and it's actually great that you really focus on the exercise side of things that's what we're going to focus on today is the role of strength and conditioning in rehab but I'm, I'm curious like what was the shift that made you want to start educating people online or was it when you're already a professor or you just felt like there's a lot of stuff you wanted to share with rehab science yeah, that's a funny story, actually, because this uh, current account I have on Instagram mainly is where people find me is uh, my third time. I had deleted it twice in the past. And uh, what what it actually ended up happening was when I had those previous accounts, I would do more sort of random posting. It wasn't always educational. It was, um, you know, just kind of silly things here and there. And I would wake up one day and wonder why I was doing it and I'd delete it. And, uh, you know, I was teaching in the, I was teaching uh, the undergraduate kinesiology students at that time. And I came into class one day and finished uh, the biomechanics lecture and a student came up to me afterwards and said, you know, what happened to your account? I was showing my mom, she's got a rotator cuff problem. I was showing her some of your exercises. And I left class that day and realized that it could, that account could have an impact. And I was going to move forward with the sole mission of just providing helpful educational info every day and not just the random things I was kind of doing before that were more personal and things. I just thought I'd focus just on education. And yeah, that was three years ago. And I've been pretty close to doing something almost every day. 
And so it's been really fun to see it grow, but it was really just a hobby. It wasn't meant to be anything. It was just to provide, you know, just a social, positive social impact really mission. So. Yeah, it's definitely a great page. I remember we were in this group together with a bunch of other rehab pages and Tom was like the, like the big guy. He had the big following and everyone was like basing their content off yours. <laughs> it's so crazy, man. Like it just is, uh, it's such a, I think I was in the right spot at the right time when I got in there. You know, honestly, people ask me about things and I don't do really that much. You know, my stuff's not that different than everyone else's. And I think I just was early enough in the game. There's so much of life that's like that, right? Being in the right place at the right time and having the preparation to actually take advantage of that opportunity. And I think uh, a lot of that is what happened. So, I mean, it's been a huge blessing. I, you know, it's just, it's so cool to interact with people all over the world and, have a have the opportunity to hopefully provide something positive and impact people so man yeah it's uh it's crazy where it's gotten to and i i don't take it for granted that's for sure so during your career were you always focused on the exercise side of rehab because i know you had some recent posts talking about like for knee pain and you don't exercise is the most effective thing versus you don't necessarily need manual therapy has that been the trend throughout your career or more therapists started to shift towards, let's focus more on getting people to move better. Yeah, that's for sure been an evolution because I did a manual therapy residency. So I was uh, extremely heavy in terms of using manual therapy. I mean, basically every person that came to me, I would spend the majority of the time doing manual interventions and uh, always had exercise as a part of it, but it was sort of a a smaller compliment. I, it was sort of like I would get, teach people exercises and have them do them at home. And it just wasn't a huge focus for me in the practice, even though I had that exercise science degree initially, you know, it wasn't rehab focus. It's just general exercise physiology. Uh, when I got into PT, I had so much, so much of my education had revolved around manual therapy that it was just, uh, I sort of prided myself in my skill in manual therapy and thinking how specific I could be with those interventions. And once I got more into pain science and saw more research come out, come out on manual therapy and potentially the downsides of using it too much, um, depending on the messaging and things like that, I've definitely evolved more towards exercise and exercise is great because it has the strongest evidence and you can do it at home. You don't have to have to go see somebody to do it. So, you know, I think I think of myself more as a guy who is sort of coaching people with pain and guiding them through the process and exercise and movement is the primary intervention. And I still use some manual things and I still am deep in that conversation and looking at following the research and trying to figure out listening to other um, experts in the field and sort of, I mean, I will keep evolving. So, you know, it's not the process isn't done. I'm still sort of in the mix of totally deciding what I think on all that. So when you, when you came up with the name rehab science, obviously there's some science behind it, but what are like the key components you, I guess, consider in your philosophy? Is it like always breaking down the research or is it doing what, again, going with the exercise and has, you've evolved as a therapist are there kind of specific core elements you try to educate people with? Yeah. I mean, I picked that name because, uh, you know, the rehab science, the area of study of rehab science to me was sort of the best umbrella terminology for encompassing all the areas that go into, 
you know, helping people eliminate pain and move better, whether it's kind of, you know, the neuro side, whether we're looking at biomechanics, uh, anatomy, you know, it just sort of encompassed all these things that, so it made sense to me. It, it covered, it felt like the most broad term for wrapping in all the things we'd think about. Uh, you know, and my account is really, I think part of what makes it, it successful is that for sure there's often a research element, but it also brings in the 13 years of practice experience I've had. So it's like, I mean, evidence-based practice is such a buzz phrase these days, but you know, you've got clinical experience plus the evidence. And I think my account, or at least I try to make it, I try to design it in a way that it represents those two things. Yeah, and I really like what you say about helping people eliminate pain and move better because you really can't have one without the other. Where in the past, like when I've gone to physio, it's just been, you know, let's let's mask this pain and you can figure out what exercises to do on your own. Whereas now, like I I I'm actually just I had an injury since during the quarantine and I've I strained my glute meat. It was a, a minor partial tear and I've rehabbed it all on my own at home just with exercise. So it's really cool how you can just learn to move better and not only recover from your injuries, but find your weakest link and make yourself stronger coming back. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes people will talk about that as physios, it is not our primary goal to get people out of pain, but right. I mean, it, it's the number one symptom people are coming to us for, and it really matters to them. And while improving their function might be our primary concern, helping people get out of pain is only going to help enhance that function. And it's just, you know, it's, and that is often, you know, that's communicated, I think, to people that sometimes it's not realistic to expect that pain will be 100% gone all the time. You know, depending on what they're coming in for, you may always have some lingering symptoms or it may flare up with things. I mean, look, I've got pain, things like that, that since I was a teenager bother me if I do certain triggering events. So I just have figured out how to modify activities and manage, you know, my exercise and movement so that I don't bother those things. I think it's, it's unrealistic for, uh, in, mo in many cases, for people to think I will go through life with absolutely no pain. But at the same time, we want to help them reduce it as much as possible so that that's only going to help enhance function that much more. So yeah, it's cool though, like what you can do at home. You know, if you know the right things and what to do, you can really rehab yourself. Yeah, and I definitely having what you said, like there's definitely been a lot of pain throughout the rehab, like especially with a with a partial tear. Like if you overdo it, you'll definitely feel it the next day. So for me, like throughout all my injuries, whether it be my shoulder or my my knee or this this glute injury, it's really been about developing a better relationship and understanding of pain. Because like in the past with my shoulder injury eight years ago, I would I used to be so mad at myself. I was like, shit, like I can't work out. I can't do gymnastics anymore. I trained too hard. What, what is my life now? And I, I thought I would never come back. And now with this one, I'm more using it as a tool to know if I should push the tissue harder, if I should back off a little bit. So I just got back to running recently. I'm like, okay, how does it feel the next day? Did I do too much? So I'm really trying to use it as more of a tool to progressively overload instead of using it as like, like I, that's, I'm actually like at the point where I'm at the mindset, I'm okay if there's like one or two pain the next day. Because that way I know it was three out of four a month ago. Yeah, it's cool, you know, to hear, you know, when you, 
you know, us in this field, we, uh, you know, just hearing you talk about how you approach pain and injuries. Now you sound like a scientist, right? Like, it's like you're running an experiment on yourself, you know, and you're using the data you get to modify, you know, the, the movements and exercise and things. And for us, it's, it, it doesn't, uh, for us who are in this world, it doesn't, pain doesn't make us as anxious because we look at it, you know, we have it framed in that way. And I, so you wish, you know, because, you know, even right now with how stressful things are in the world for many people, you know, I have had some virtual consultations with people and some people who are in pain are not only are they stressed about life in general, that stress is feeding into how they're feeling about their body, you know, and, their, and the pain they're having. And you see some people really getting very anxious and fearful and just stressed about pain. And, you know, it so much of it, I think, is helping them look at it in the way that we look at it, where it's like, hey, don't, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean something bad's happening. You don't have to beat yourself up about it. It's just sometimes things get kind of flared up and, you know, it gets a little irritated and you just use that information to help figure out how you go forward. It's not the end of the world, you know, but easier said than done, right? I mean, it's, you know, trying to coach people through that when they don't have the same background can be difficult. Yeah, it's definitely like having been there as a patient now, soon to be a therapist, I find it, it's a big mindset shift that's taken a lot of time, but I feel like if, if you don't as a therapist have those communication skills, or even as a trainer, you got a client who's in pain, if you don't communicate them like the right expectation or even just having the right mindset, it can be very hard because if you're just addressing the one factor, the pain, it can be really hard. Again, because you said it can make you anxious and that can, you can go deeper into the science, but cause some sort of sensitization to the pain. Yeah, for sure. That communication is huge. And that's been a another huge evolution for me because I didn't actually, when I was in uh, physical therapy school, there was not, pain science was still, it was, it was newer, you know, it wasn't being, it wasn't in my curriculum. And uh, there might've been a little bit on psychology. I remember doing all the psychology prerequisites before PT school. And, uh, but you know, it just sort of felt like you were jumping through hoops. You didn't really, I didn't really come out of it realizing how much I would apply those concepts with patients. And I think uh, that's an area where I've really evolved is getting better at letting sitting and not talking so much and trying to let patients let them talk and me spend time listening and, and really trying to figure out what they value and what their goals are and, you know, what they enjoy doing in terms of movement and, you know, because a lot of people, a lot of patients don't like standard rehab exercises. I mean, they're pretty boring. They don't want to do too many of them, you know what I mean? So it's trying to figure out how to collaborate with people more than just kind of jam stuff down their, you know, down their neck. So, yeah, I feel like it's also important to understand where they're coming from, and what they want to get back to. Because I know that those people who do have injuries and they're not really so keen on moving better. Whereas you have the other ones who are more keen on moving better, but they're afraid to get back to, to their sport. So it's a, there's a little bit of a divide between all of them, but I, we could all agree that moving better is the key for whatever you want to get back to. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Yeah. It's such a, yeah, it's such an important, such an important aspect is what, it, what does someone want to get back to? What are the goals at the end of it? Cause you can have all your own goals. I mean, right. So we're trained as physios to write goals for people. Mm -hmm you know, but uh, yeah, really important to figure out exactly 
you know, what their goals are. And I, I used to rush through that process when I was early on. I sort of had this plan. Oh, they've got these symptoms that matches. I did these tests. It matches with this diagnosis. The research tells me I should do these interventions. So my goals are to X, Y, Z based on all of that information. It, I didn't, I wasn't as good at taking into account, um, you know, what they thought about the issue mm-hmm. and how they saw themselves moving forward. Yeah. One cool thing about rehab and strength training is there, you can just use the principles and apply them to almost any intervention. Like in my example, there's so many different ways to load the glutes. Like you could do like a million different variations of hip hinges. You can do eccentrics, isometrics, bands, no bands. There's just so many ways. And I think if we give them the tools and the appropriate progressions, they can figure out what's working for them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I always say in my posts on social media, you know, that this is just a sample of exercises. You know, I mean, yeah. I did a glute me little series the other day, and that one's always really popular. People, I think people just love the glutes, but, uh, you know, that, you know, I just put up a few of them and cited a study that happened to look at some rehab exercises and the EMG levels for them. But man, there was, I think they studied 30 exercises in that study. So, yeah, if you teach people the the principles behind things and give them some options, I mean, you really, as a patient, could go and build your own program and, you know, you have all the kind of the ammunition to, you know, sometimes we overcomplicate exercise. I think there's a lot of accounts and things out there's there. There's a lot of that, yeah. Yeah, just like all these fancy, crazy exercises. And, you know, sometimes people, I once in a while, I'll have someone comment on one of my posts and say, you know, something about, the exercise is being simple or boring or basic or, and that's most of the time, that's all you need. Honestly. I mean, you don't need really fancy stuff. You just need, it's more about how that exercise is dosed. Like you were talking about, you know, I mean, how, you know, maybe it's isometrics, concentric, E versus eccentric. Maybe it's, uh, you know, the more the sets and the reps, you know, it's looking at those little nuances and how that movement is dosed. And that's really probably more important than, you know, how you just don't need a real, a bunch of really fancy exercises yeah one thing i was afraid of during my rehab was knowing how soon to start back with the exercise like i started a lot with just like some band walks and that wasn't getting me anywhere so it wasn't until like maybe a mo- like a month or a few weeks later where i was like okay let's do some isometrics and even if it's five seconds let's just write it down and maybe i'll get 10 seconds the next day yeah. now i can do like a minute but it just like when you're in pain you never think where the b is from starting from a you're just like you're just kind of afraid then, but if you can just imagine where you can be, if you just stick to those even five seconds. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I think you're so right. You know, cause people, patients, they don't have that, you know, they don't have the educational background we do and they, to them. So in so many cases, it's just, do I have pain or do I not have pain? You know, and if I have pain, I don't really know, you know, they just, it's just this sort of black or white kind of outlook in a lot of cases. And just like you're talking about, you know, if you can find somewhere just to start and figure out a way to, to move forward slowly. And I, I end up talking, I think a lot of us, our memory is not great. So when we've had an injury and pain a month later, we might actually be quite a bit better in a lot of ways, but we still have pain. So we just think, Oh, I'm not really that much better. It's been a month, but really, you know, so I have a lot of patients do journals on kind of some characteristics about their pain at certain points in time. So they can look back and, that's something I've come to uh, to value more, uh, you know, later on now as a physio, just because I, it helps people look back and really see, oh, this was like this a month ago, 
this one activity bothered me and now I do that. It doesn't bother me at all. Even though I still have pain, I know I can do that activity with less pain or, you know, so I think, you know, it's kind of a way for them to almost measure things and track them like what you're talking about. You naturally do in your head. Yeah. I definitely read it down as well, but early on in the rehab after a certain point, I'm just like, now that I'm a minute, let's just add some weight. So I know how much more weight I'm adding, but it's yeah. true. It makes you actually visually see, Oh, I'm actually progressing where you can feel like, if you're not tracking anything, same with your workouts in the gym. If you feel like you're not getting strong or building muscle and you're not tracking it, or if you don't look at it, you'd really, you're just kind of in the dark, but it really empowers you. And that's really what it's all about is just empowering. You're like, okay, I did this. Now I'm increasing my confidence just a little bit to a little bit more slowly and slowly and slowly. Yeah. I find it actually like a, a really powerful tool. And oh yeah. yeah. And even just be date what you did, how you felt. Totally. Yeah. It can be real simple. And you're exactly right. I mean, if you think about the gym and you go in and lift, like we don't even think twice about writing down and not that I'm always good about this, but we, most people it's, they've seen this enough and it makes sense. You'd go in the gym and if you're lifting weights, you'd write down how many sets you did and what the weight was, and how many reps each set and you'd keep track of it. And for sure, I know when I don't do that, I end up just kind of plateauing and I end up doing the same stuff all the time. And then yeah. once I actually write it down, I'm like, Oh man, like I need to bump this up a little bit here. You know, so it's, uh, it's true when you don't write something down, our memory just, I think, um, you know, the accuracy of the human memory is uh, not as good as we often think it is. And we just, you know, we, if you work at a desk job and want to move pain free, look and feel your best. Let's get the conversation started to see if you could be a good fit for David's coaching program. Connect with us through all the social platforms and see the show notes below. I fudge in some details and we forget things and it you know it's really helpful to to write it down and keep track of it yeah the cool thing about memory is you can just by writing it down you can leave a memory trace and then you can step back into that feeling of say when something was bothering you or even another memory so even just writing it down like oh i remember how that felt at 15 seconds versus if you don't it just you have no traces to really pull back true yeah yeah yeah, it's a good reminder to me. I need to uh, start writing my workouts down a little more. Even in quarantine here now, I just you know, I, I just am kind of haphazardly doing things. I should actually write down. You know, I'll just go out there and do a workout. I should actually organize them a little better, and it's a good good motivation for me too. What are some things you've been doing to stay active and pain free at home? Yeah, I uh, I mean, the I uh, you know, I pretty much just do. You know, you and I are both gymnasts, so I. Uh, I do a lot of body weight resistance training stuff. Honestly, it's my favorite. I love body weight stuff. I love it. It's just like I come up with, I just come out. I, there's so much stuff just around the house. So if you get creative and you see people doing these workouts, these all kinds of these posts right now, but you can figure out all kinds of things to create resistance. Or if you got someone else that you're living with, I mean, you can figure out ways. I just find things I can step up on things that could take the place of dumbbells. If I don't have them load backpacks up with weight, whatever you want to do just to, you know, but, and, and there's so much you can do just with your body. I mean, so yeah, I, I spend most of my time, I, you know, I, I'm lucky that it, being in California, I can, I'm in a neighborhood where there's hardly anybody around, so I can go run if I want to, but mostly I, I prefer to do body resistance training stuff. How important do you feel it is not only for rehab alone, but for someone evolving in their fitness journey to master their body weight, to gain that body awareness? Cause I find it's a big component is a lot of people get injured because they don't have that awareness when they're thrown out of position where they're not comfortable. 
Yeah, I think it's huge. And I took it for granted because I started martial arts so young. I started at 10 and it was my main sport. You know, I was really high level competitor in Taekwondo. I, Taekwondo became an Olympic sport the year I graduated from high school. So I had thought about going that route and not going to college right away. But I think because I was in martial arts, martial arts is so focused on body awareness. You know, I like gymnastics, right? These two things are so focused on body awareness and knowing where you are in space. And because I started that as a kid, I didn't, it was just all I knew. It was kind of my world. So it's only now looking back on it. And now that I do mostly resistance training, I think about, you know what, if I had only done sort of like traditional, if I went to the gym and I was just doing bench and squat and deadlift and maybe this was my only workout and I'd never had that martial arts gymnastics background. I don't think I would have the same, my, my body awareness wouldn't be at the same level it is now. I think all of those body weight tasks of controlling yourself in space and those sports, knowing how to balance and, you know, training those proprioceptive sort of uh, capacities. I think now looking back on it, I realize how important it was for my overall health. It sort of laid that foundation for my movement control. And, you know, that just translates into anything else I go to pick up now. Yeah, I find it makes you more functional, especially like balance and proprioception are huge for when you're aging. Like I have a lot of clients who are a little bit older and they've been going to the gym, but they don't work on their balance at all. So we've been just working on, you know, balance, course stimulating the small things. And, and at first people are like, they just want to lift weights. But once you explain the benefits, it's actually so important because, you know, it's not, you know, why don't I have balance through a lunge? But maybe there's other things that you need and other prerequisites because standing in a split stance is super important, even for anybody having that balance. For sure, man. And like you said, I mean, I think this is why Tai Chi and all these studies around Tai Chi were so, you know, you saw them like crazy for a while with older populations. I think it makes sense, right? You're putting yourself, you're, you're uh, modifying that base of support and putting yourself in challenging positions and altering the speed of movement. And yeah, I mean, it's such a, such an important component of, uh, of overall health. I don't know if you know Mark Chang. He's in California. I did this yeah. program called Tai Chang, and it was really cool. I used to do it with my grandparents. Ah, I didn't know he had that. I know who he is, but I didn't know he had that program. Yeah, it's through Beachbody. I did it years and years ago. It was great. That's cool. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He's interesting. He's all the martial arts are influencing what he does. So in terms of pain science, like how is them obviously you can do a bunch of basic exercises, like we said, and they don't need to be fancy, but how important is it to really creep up into that position that causes a little bit of pain? Because what I've been told from my mentors is that, you know, if you just avoid that one position that causes pain, such as for me, like I was getting a bit of pain on hip extension. And if I didn't, you know, push between the one and two threshold, then it was never going to get better. Is there like, science supporting that you need to, you know, approach it, that area where it's a little bit of discomfort? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is going to vary. I think generally, yes, you can say that. I think, you know, it's going to vary a little bit depending on maybe what type of pain you're talking about, whether you've got somebody who maybe has some of that sensitization type of those kind of symptoms where, you know, we would look at, you know, because you think about the healthy state, somebody's healthy and they don't have something going on. we think about, you know, this threshold where pain might begin, like a pain perception threshold, right. and then an actual level where there'd be injury, right? And those things can become sort of 
confused when people have sensitization and things like that. I think, in, you know, in your case where maybe you have something that seems a little bit more nociceptive kind of tissue based, like you had a glutamine tear and it seems pretty obvious that the symptoms are coming from that tissue disruption, then yeah, I think, you know, and this has been another evolution for me because when I first came out of school, if I'd give someone something and they said, oh, this one hurts, I'd say, okay, well, don't do that. That was like my just immediate response, which I look back on. I'm like, what the heck was I doing? You know, and it's now, I think, like you said, it's in many cases so important for people. We stress of all kinds is important. It's just that you have to dose the stress appropriately. And I think with so many of these musculoskeletal injuries, especially when, especially when you're looking at a muscle and tendon injury and you're looking at improving the capacity of that musculotendinous unit, you need to stress it. You need to find that point where you can push the limits a little bit. You got to push the yield point of that tissue. You know, in biomechanics, we always talk about tissues have an elastic region where if you deform them and change their shape, they will snap back to the original shape. And then they have a yield point. And if you go past that, they plastically deform and they don't assume their normal position. You know, so if you have a tear, you go past the yield point, and you're into plastic deformation, right? It's not going back to this normal shape. But I often think about that load deformation curve and think about that yield point and almost as sort of a metaphor for how you could think about pain. You, know, you want to think about almost this yield point for pain or maybe it's that flare line that people talk about and right you get right to that yield point and kind of train right there you can move it higher and then your pain threshold is different or the capacity of the tissue is higher if you always stay below it then anytime you get involved in a task that pushes pushes the capacity you're probably gonna have symptoms again or you're more likely to injure that tissue again yeah it's super interesting there's so many different ways to think about how we do the rehab but the the yield the yield curve is kind of like just increasing again your your capacity so not, you can never be wrong getting stronger am i right <laughs> totally man totally and i that's another thing people say sometimes is that they'll see a <clears throat> some sort of basic resistance training exercise and they'll say well these aren't functional and I'm like, well getting stronger is always functional you know increasing strength it might be something that's very isolates a particular movement of a joint and muscle and maybe it's not standing in enclosed chain and doesn't look that functional but you're still making that tissue stronger and you're increasing its capacity and tissue with greater capacity for sure is functional you know it's going to help you in some functional way yeah people always get mixed up on what functional is but really like things like there's a lot of basics that we can fall under functional whether we argue what your goals are such as you know body weight bands are extremely functional because of the resistance trx's gymnastics rings like stuff like that are, are super functional for everyone and especially the balance work too and then obviously you can make it more specific i want this so i'm more functional with this goal but there's a lot of like non-negotiables that are that are effective yeah. Well, functional is such a broad, it can mean so many different things to so many different people. So it's kind of one of those terms that every time I'm about to write it or type it, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Bit, I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I should put this word, you know? So it's, uh, it's almost uh, become like a clickbaity type word. I feel like it makes people think what their goals are a little bit more. At least that's where I'm at with it. Like if someone comes to me, Hey, I want to build some functional strength and mobility. I'll be like, great. What does that look like for you? And then you can kind of go into it, but I feel like it helps them explore a little bit more because some people don't really know how to articulate what that means. So it kind of gives them an invitation. Yeah, no, it's a great, that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Cause a lot of people know that term, but you could kind of use it in a way to, you know, conjure up a little more conversation about what that actually means for them. 
Yeah, it's really cool stuff. So let's, let's dive into posture now. It's a topic I'm pretty mm-hmm. passionate about. Now, I've been doing this desk-bound therapy for five years now. My opinion's definitely changed. But when I started, it's when I was working as a software engineer. I had a posture brace on. I had a ton of shoulder pain. I couldn't stand or sit at my desk without any shoulder pain. So I thought that my posture, that posture caused pain because it was aggravating my existing shoulder injury because, and then, so for the longest time I thought it was just that, but realize now that as, as I've learned a lot that, you know, even sitting with good posture can come, I would say more discomfort than pain, but I definitely feel though, if you have an injury and you're sitting in one position right now, like I'm sitting for an hour on my glute and I'm probably not going to sit the rest of the day. So I definitely feel like it's not just the posture we're looking at, but I feel like it's our overall, like, how much you move and your overall alignment per se. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I was, uh, you and I probably didn't have that different approaches. I mean, when I was early on in my career, you know, I would do, I was trained to do these kind of extensive postural analyses where I'd have someone stand, I'd look at their front side and I'd really sit there and how, you know, how level are their shoulders side to side? What is their, what are their iliac crests feel like? What's the arm window? I would look at, you know, and then I'd turn to the side and look at the, and it just, it was this long process. And, you know, I, I think when we look at the research on, you know, posture as it relates to pain, we found that that's a pretty weak relationship and static maybe, and maybe I should be more specific, you know, when you look at these static postures, you know, the static posture doesn't seem to be that you could say, oh, when people have this static posture, they always develop this pain problem. Just didn't really seem to be the case. You know, you'd have people who'd be in that posture and they'd be totally fine, healthy, and symptom-free. And then you'd have people be in a really, what was the good posture, you know, with their shoulders retracted and, you know, sitting up tall and a curve in their spine in all the right places. And then they'd have symptoms. So it was, I think we've, as time has gone on, like you said, we've moved more in the direction of looking at posture as you just maybe don't want to be in one particular posture for too long. Maybe a bad posture is just one you're in for too long. You know, it's just the key is to our nervous system seems to like movement. And so, you know, we need to maybe just be moving between postures on a regular basis. And you know, I get into, I have parents of teenagers sometimes get upset with me in, in evaluations because I will sometimes tell teenage kids, you know, that they'll have maybe some kind of pain they're coming in for. And the parent believe the parent wants them to sit up with good posture. They, uh, you know, it's just like this thing that's been passed down from generation to generation that people have this idea in their mind of like, this is good posture and you need to have it. And look, there might be other reasons to sit up straight, you know, uh, you know, you if you're a kid in school, maybe it's important. Your teacher thinks you're focusing if you sit up straight and make eye contact. You don't think you're slouched over. Yeah, when, better but, breathing, stuff like that too. Yeah, for sure. Like there's other reasons maybe to think about uh, posture. But I think when it comes to pain, you know, I'm often telling, you know, so I'll, I'll get these parents, you know, they look at me like I'm crazy. I think sometimes because I will say sometimes to these teenage kids, you know, look, if you're, they're sitting there slouching while I'm talking to them, I'll say, you know, if it, you're slouching right now and you don't have any pain, then your nervous system's pretty good at what it does. So if you don't have any pain there, you're, it's okay to sit like that. You know, the key is just to kind of move regularly. And if that normal upright, good sort of posture that everyone views as good gives you symptoms, then let's just 
figure out a way to work around that for right now and just try to break that cycle in your your brain and your your nervous system but yeah and i think it's good to set boundaries too right because your tissues could creep and then you could start slouching and and then you could have a little bit of back pain or back soreness throughout the day and then when you say you say there's there's different situations here but say when you sit upright you know after it can be even painful if after your tissues have creeped all day into that slouch position so i generally like to recommend just trying to do what's like not spend the whole day slouch but not send the whole day forward like i find like sometimes i'll lean back in my chair and there's a little bit of curve and then i'll sit back upright and then maybe i slouch a bit because that's going to prevent my my back from getting sore in one position totally yeah no i i agree big time i mean you every all of us can imagine i mean you can imagine situations like if, i remember when i was a kid and i'd ride my bike for hours and i'd have my hand on the handlebars and you go to open your hand like ah, oh, it hurts because you've been like holding the handlebars forever oh yeah you know, maybe i'm the only person who rode my bike that long but you know it's uh yeah the tissues change and i think that can be another example of hey we want to keep things kind of fluid and moving and you know and i think they say on average people change their posture about every six minutes. So we kind of do this subconsciously without even thinking. And, you know, I wonder sometimes the people who are having pain with a particular static position, if for whatever reason, maybe the tasks they're doing, they get so distracted that they stay in that position for longer than they need to. And, and I think a lot of cases, the job or the activities required of their job don't allow them to move out of that position easily. You know, like, you imagine if you were like an assembly line worker, you've got to be in this posture doing this particular task. You've got to be involved in it. it's happening at a rapid rate maybe, and you've got to be stuck in that position. So I think unfortunately there's some people that have careers and um, activities where they can't as easily move out of a posture. And that, you know, I think that's where a lot of these issues come into, you come into play where you just can't, you don't have the option to move out of it. Yeah, and I definitely feel like it posture does give you a lim- an invitation to move better because when you think about it, say someone says they want better posture, then that's an invitation for you to explore your, your thoracic mobility, your shoulder mobility, your hip mobility, because people are under the misconception that posture is just your upper back and bring your shoulders back, but really it's an invitation to move better overall. So when I have people who come to me who say they want to fix their posture and I go through a movement assessment, like a functional movement screen. I'm like, all right, let's just improve your mobility in these lacking areas and see what happens. Because I'm sure that improving some thoracic mobility will make it a little bit more comfortable to sit. So it's more, yeah, I, that's how I view it as an invitation. Yeah, no, I like that. I like the way you, this kind of invitation kind of way you're framing it with some of the other things you've talked about too. And, and you're right. I mean, most people, I think because of uh, articles and media and things, it's, it is interesting. People think about posture is really like, they only really think of it as sort of like their head and mid back and where their shoulders are. It's like nothing below the waist is on anyone's radar for, you know, the position of their body or what's happening with it. It's really just kind of, you know, the back and head and neck and things. So it is interesting to think about it, but I think a lot of it is just what people are reading. They see all these articles about text neck and rounded shoulders. And oftentimes these highly nocebic messages of how bad these things will be for you. And, you know, so people have all this kind of posture stuff on their brain. Yeah, that's really the thing. There's just a lot of disconnect because we, we need to educate people. The position of your pelvis is going to influence the rest of your spine, which could be causing your shoulders and your neck to go forward. Or is the position of your lumbar spine could be affecting that. So it's really just about like, again, that body awareness is going to help you there. If you feel your head come forward, maybe just, you know, t- set your hips when you're sitting at the chair. Yeah. Or, yeah. There's like, there's that whole kinematic chain, you know, and, I don't think, uh, 
Yeah, it's um, right. Like if you look at these, these things are all going to work together. I mean, that whole kinematic chain and you see you know, there's different kind of images out there where you can see how one thing can influence the next segment and that can influence the next segment. And you can, you know, you, like you say, you could give people other strategies to think about other regions of their body, you know, maybe moving one particular thing causes some discomfort, but being in a particular position just causes discomfort. Maybe there's a, another segment in that chain that you could teach them how to move and improve the body awareness there. Maybe that influences the painful region in some way. Maybe you can alter their symptoms through that. I think there's just so many options. And that's the cool thing with movement and, and pain science is that there's so many, you know, there's so many avenues often uh, to approach someone's symptoms and, you know, and, and strategies to, 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 to employ to alter their symptoms in some way, you know, which can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing because, you know, because so many different things work for pain, oftentimes it makes people believe, it leads people to believe that maybe something that has, doesn't have great research actually helps them, you know, and that's where all the, you know, expectations and beliefs and the whole you know, psychological component of pain gets so interesting. Yeah, it's so true. And I feel like even using, like you could have the perfect posture, but if you have, or whatever that may be, and whatever's comfortable for you, and then you could have poor ergonomics and it could throw everything off. There's so many components. Like maybe it's not just looking at doing that posture analysis first, but maybe it's as simple as optimizing your, your desk station. Yeah, that's why that quote at the beginning, I think, is uh, so important to me because I, for sure, as time has gone on, I was much more certain. I've always been a little bit of an uncertain, just in general, I'm skeptical and uncertain of things. It's just my general personality, but uh, I was more certain as a new grad, for sure. I thought I had a lot of the answers, and uh, as I've gotten into these things more, I think I like that quote from Mosley because, I mean, look, that guy is one of the best in the world at this stuff. And, you know, for him to state how complex things are, I think it, it just, um, I think it's always a good reminder for us to think about how much we don't know and to have some humility with what we tell people and what we suggest and to realize that what we think we know and what we actually know, you know, is, uh, you know, it's just, we're just at the tip of the iceberg, I think, of learning these things. And each person, you know, each person is so unique in how their pain is shaped and the potential number of factors that could be involved. And, you know, it's just, even when it seems simple, it probably isn't really simple. Yeah. And a big thing that we talked about in our last chat was people understanding their functional limitations when it comes to, you know, moving better and, where their posture be causing them issues. Cause I feel like a lot of times, like people will come to me, Hey, I want to improve my posture. I'm like, what sort of limitations do you have? And they don't say anything. They're just, Oh, I just want better posture. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a common one, right? Like people will just, and it's interesting to think about where those questions stem from, but you see that all the time that people, I, how do I fix anterior pelvic tilt? Well, do you have any issues? No, I just, want to know how to fix my anterior pelvic tilt. Well, I, I mean, I just did a post since the other day. I mean, some of these things are normal. Like most of the population has a degree of anterior pelvic tilt, you know? So, but because of, 
these sort of thought viruses that have passed from one person to the next, there's all these postural things that have become sort of negative in people's minds and they want to know how to fix them. Even if they, like you say, they don't even have a functional limitation or pain. They just feel like they need to fix this postural thing. Yeah. There's different camps. Like there's just like, I'm really into the FRC and the movement optimization. So like there it's okay. If you, you have the intentions there, Oh, I want to correct this so I can move better. And just to, so I, I can control that range of motion. So there's a lot of different camps there. Like mm -hmm. I know for me personally from gymnastics and doing this front splits, I was predisposed to that anterior tilt and it did cause me a little bit of lower back pain. But now, you know, I, I built some more strength in my hips and my core where I can do the splits, but I don't have that resting anterior tilt as much. I'm still definitely, I have a degree for it, but it's definitely not where it was. Yeah. You know, like you say, there's so many different camps and I think different ways of looking at things and people are seeing, you know, it, it can be tough. Like if you're not in this world and you don't know necessarily how to, don't have a good way of filtering through information you could hear be hearing you know two different sides of the story and wondering how do i move forward on this and like you say i think man having control of your body through its full range of motion is huge you know i think that goes a long way in terms of helping you know reduce the risk of certain injuries and things and i'm all for that you know i mean trying to figure out you just my joint moves through this range of motion. I should have the neuromuscular control to control it through that range of motion. And, you know, you don't want to see somebody where they're stuck in a position and they don't know how to get out of it. You know, I think those types of situations. So like if somebody, for instance, the pelvic tilt thing, they have somebody had anterior pelvic tilt and they didn't even have the neuromuscular awareness to shift out of that position and create a posterior pelvic tilt, or they didn't have the muscular endurance and fatigue to hold that position if they needed to. then yeah, I'm all for, training those capacities if it makes sense you know based on their symptoms or the goals they have functionally right yeah it's so true really just taking that time to understand them and i know i know last time we talked about how important it is to have the joint control and the active kind of subsystem whereas you know passive flexibility is good because you need that passive range of motion in order to gain active but i find like people just neglect that that final step is putting those solidifying your, your movement gains really yeah, for sure. And I think, and it seems like you see more of these systems. I mean, you were talking about FRC, they spend a lot of time working on active control through that range, right? Yeah, and maybe it's not for everyone, but it's definitely, yeah. you know, something to keep in your back pocket. Like for me, yeah. for example, like, I use it more as a, a movement prep to warm up my joints before training. For example, like yesterday, uh, I was warming up, but I did some dips then feel great. So I did some pails rails on shoulder extension, and then it was fine. So it's more like another tool to be my own scientist. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's nothing wrong with wanting to gain flexibility. I mean, look, I spent a ton of time. I used to do the splits. I mean, I used to sit in this chair at Taekwondo practice. I mean, it was just not a chair, I guess. It was this thing on the ground. You've probably seen these. You sit in them in the splits. Yeah. And there's a crank in the middle, and you turn the crank, and it pushes your legs out. Yeah, it's you not know? fun. Yeah, no. Pretty soon you look like Van Damme or something. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, so I spent all this time working on flexibility. But, again back then and i didn't even realize it was happening one it was like i would work on that flexibility but then i would immediately do drills that were active that taught me how to control that flexibility mm -hmm. you know so it was just built into martial arts and i didn't even realize how good it was at the time i didn't, you know, I didn't know the science of any of this stuff i was just doing martial arts and so i think that's if people want to gain flexibility by all means but you know you probably also want to have a component after that passive stretching where you teach your neuromuscular system and build strength through that range so you can actually control it. Cause 
you know, I mean, that's where people get into trouble with some of these injuries is where they've got a sort of like an instability where they have some movement going on that they can't control, you know, and then you potentially, you know, maybe increase your risk of, you know, injuring a passive subsystem structure because that active subsystem does not have the control over that, you know, that area of the body. Yeah, and that's what happened in my case. I was playing a, I was playing ultimate frisbee, and there was like a knee on knee collision, and my glute me didn't have the eccentric strength to stop myself in time, so it just kind of took the blow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can feel you on that. I mean, I'm 38 now, and it seems like, you know, my tissues are just different, and I've had some experiences in the last few years where, if I don't really focus on keeping the capacity of my tissue up, just as things, my body gets a little older, I still have this mindset of I can do everything I did in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a lot of ways, my physical function actually isn't that different, but the way that I heal and how my tissues sort of handle stress has changed. So, you know, I totally hear where you're coming from. I, I, I've had some situations where, in my mind, this thing is going to go perfectly well. And then, uh, it doesn't go perfectly well. Or the next day it, you know, I feel a lot different than I would have 10 years ago. Yeah. And so. that's all, all really part of the journey is just, I find it rehab or fitness. You're just learning your body and that's what keeps things fine. and keeps things interesting. Yep. Yep. Yeah. If you can frame it like that experiment you were talking about before, you just keep, uh, you know, you've got, uh, this body and you can kind of, you know, you just keep, taking the data and, and modifying things. And, you know, and that's the other thing is that I think sometimes you'll hear people who are older wonder if they can still make positive changes. And for sure, right. You look at the strength and conditioning research and, you know, you can make, you can, you can uh, create positive adaptations throughout life. So that's why we talk about this so much with older people and sarcopenia where, you know, we tend to lose muscle mass as we age, but you can really offset that with strength training. Yeah, strength training is massive. And one thing that I want to ask you about is I feel like hypermobility is thrown around a lot and having talked about that joint control in the active subsystem, is it more of lack of control than it is hypermobility per se? Because I feel like in the physio world, like there's some physios who say you don't need too much mobility or flexibility, whereas, you know, they're using hypermobility with a negative connotation, whereas I feel it's more just lack of control yeah i have no problem with hypermobility hypermobility i'm hypermobile in certain areas and it has been beneficial uh in certain aspects of life i agree with you hypermobility without active subsystem control that to me is the issue you know if you have a an inability to i don't know if instability is the right word but if you just if you lack the control through that range of motion either you don't maybe have the awareness of it or you don't possess the muscle strength and endurance you know maybe a person fatigues out quickly and now they are in a situation where they're moving into a range of motion that they don't have the they can't generate enough muscle force to control it whatever factors it might be i uh if you have the control through that extra range of motion to me that can actually be an advantage in a lot of things in life i mean i did jujitsu for a lot of years and having really hyper mobile i have mobile shoulders but I can control them and they're strong through that range of motion. So that allowed me not to get, you know, submitted so easily. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, that's just one example, but it could be lots of other, it's probably a lot of it is sport specific applications, but uh, you know, I have not ever found my hypermobility to be my extra sort of beyond normal mobility to be an issue as long as I had the 
strength and neuromuscular control, you know, along with it. Yeah, one thing that always fascinates me, man, I don't know if you've, tr- you've treated athletes, but baseball players, man, their mobility is, is beautiful. If you see the pitchers throw and all that hip rotation and then that layback position in the shoulder, I'm just like, I can get past 90, but I'm like, how do they lay back their shoulder? I saw this that- photo yesterday. It was Bo Bichette. His arm was literally parallel to the ground throwing. I'm just like, wow. Yeah, their external rotation is incredible, you know, and they've done some of those studies where they've looked at their humerus on them, and if those throws are started at a really young age, their humerus actually has a torsion in it. So the bone is even adapted with a rotation, you know, wow. so it's pretty crazy. They, uh, and, you know, that was a thing back in the physio world back in the day because a lot of those throwers who have a, uh, really hypermobile external rotation, they'd have really limited internal rotation, you know, and so – they might have, you know, because right, like normally we'll say people have not about 90 to 100 degrees of external and around 70 of internal. You'd see some of these throwers where they'd have something like 150 to 160 of external and maybe only 10 or 20 of internal. And so for a while in the physio world, we'd all sort of think like, oh man, they don't have enough internal rotation. We need to mobilize them and, and increase their internal rotation. And then it turned out that it actually was reducing their performance and their ball speed was going down. You know, so now it's looked at as this, you know, it's just one example. So you've got this population who is technically hypermobile, right? But they can control it in most cases if they're a high-level thrower. And But because we saw this big discrepancy in range of motion, we went in there and thought, oh, we need to alter their shoulder and improve their internal rotation. But it ended up being that it impaired their performance. It was detrimental to their performance. And what really mattered was, you know, now they look at it as this total arc of range of motion. So what is your external plus your internal and how does that compare to the non-throwing arm? It's you know, pretty cool how, how the body can adapt. It's fascinating. Oh, man, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's, uh, I often wonder about, you know, you see these kind of studies in throwers and things. I often wonder what it would look like if you looked at, like, the hips of gymnasts and martial artists. If you were to go through and see if maybe there's some bony changes that happen in people or in their spines, right? We know the spines and gymnasts change a little bit if they start at a young age. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, sometimes I just put on slow-mo and I watch baseball players throw and I'm just studying the footage and it's incredible. I'm just like, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, the body's amazing. It's, uh, that's why I love kinesiology so much. Um, and my account, you know, kind of has a, in a lot of ways has a feel, I think, for that still. But it just is, uh, yeah, I think the human body's fascinating. And I think sometimes we underappreciate how much it can adapt. I think that happens a lot with people out in the world who have pain and issues and are worried about things leading to one thing or another. And I think sometimes that discounts how much, you know, how much potential our body possesses for adaptation. You know, if you're stressing it in gradual ways, it can really adapt quite a bit. Yeah. And this same thing, like if you sit enough, your body will adapt to it. So just get strong in those positions. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much of it comes back to resistance training with the musculoskeletal system. It's just, uh, there's a great quote, another good quote here. Uh, Chris Johnson, who's an awesome PT and friend of mine, uh, out in Seattle, the Seattle area. He, uh, he had a quote at one point that said, uh, if your rehab program does not look like more and more like a resistance training program, as it goes on, there's a problem, you know, which is just so true. I think, you know, rehab programs, they might start in the beginning in the acute phase is looking at more, you know, maybe they're more focused on mobility and controlling swelling or pain or whatever the person's got going on. But as that time goes on and tissues are healing, that program should look more and more like a resistance training program. And that's why I think physios, 
and you and I were talking about the other day, if physios are going to be the movement sort of movement experts, they really need to understand resistance training and exercise and strength and conditioning research. And I think that's why you see so many physios doing their CSCS and things like that. You really, you need to have some of that content knowledge to really, I think, take your patients to that, that, you know, that, that place where the evidence is going. Yeah, and I feel you really need to use your own body as your own experiment so you can connect with a lot of people. You know, the more you focus on yourself, the more you can help others. And that's so true, even with my coaching practice now. Like, I've had a, a mindset coach in the past, and it's helped me so much with the skills I've learned to help my clients, whether it be like issues with eating or getting more mobile or their mindset around food. It, it's, it's so important to just use your own body to help other people. For sure. Yeah. Being able to, I think, yeah, for one, you actually applying it, you can kind of see like, oh, these things actually, I mean, it's just, it's a, it always is a little strange to me to recommend things to people if you've never tried them yourself or you don't actually practice them. You know, it's a, you know, I think clients and patients obviously appreciate that too, because it's, uh, you know, they would like to, they I think they would like to see someone who practices what they preach. So it's uh, yeah, for sure. And I know with injuries, even though it's not fun to be injured, I've actually about, I sometimes value having certain injuries because it does definitely make me more, more empathetic. And I feel like I have a better understanding when somebody comes in, it's like, Oh yeah, I've had that proximal hamstring tendinopathy. It sucks. I know, you know, I, but I've gone through it and I've rehabbed it and it's better. And I know this can get better and you know, we can, we can go through that process in your case now too. So it's, uh, yeah, there's, um, yeah, it's, it's nice to, uh, you know, I'd practice some of these things and also maybe experience some of these problems, not for long periods, but maybe for, you know, just a little bit. So you can, I think it helps you guide people through the process better. Yeah. Like you can pull from different things. Like right now I pull from yoga, from gymnastics, from Tai Chi, from FRC, and then just general strength and conditioning. Yep. Yeah. There's so much good stuff out there now on social media. You can just, I mean, you can just, there's so much education online. You can, yeah, you can really learn so much out there. And, you know, I think that's often a good way of looking at it. There's no one, there's nobody out there that I think like, oh, I don't like that system. Or it's just all, if you really look at the themes, they often are share a lot of similar things. It's just different ways of going about it. And you can take a lot of that stuff and kind of make your, kind of form this eclectic sort of approach and give you tools to, you know, that might come into play with different people in different ways. So I think it's all good. Awesome. So we're going to wrap up with the rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask you five okay. or so questions. Yeah. You're going to answer whatever's on the top of your head. So my yeah. first one for you is how do you find a work-life balance? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> you know, uh, I used to be better at when I was just in the clinic. It was very easy for me to sort of turn my head off and just leave. And then just, I had a very clear work-life balance. Now with rehab science, I, it's easy. It's much easier for me to turn and keep it on all the time. So you know, in a lot of cases for me, it's just not taking my phone, you know? So if I go do something with my family, I just leave my phone behind. So uh, if I can disconnect from the technology, that usually is the easiest way for me to not be tempted to, that doesn't mean, I mean, things will still be on my mind, but I try to, that's a probably one of my first steps is just disconnect from the technology a little bit. Yeah. I feel like it's something that can benefit us all for sure. Just make sure you've liked both of our posts before and then put away your phone. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So what are some of the biggest challenges you had in your business or career and how did you overcome them? 
Oh man. Yeah. I've had a few of them cause I've started, I, you know, I also started, uh, I had run, I ran my own clinic for a while. I had a biomechanics lab, uh, that was a brick and mortar type business. And, uh, you know, that thing, I ended up leaving it and, uh, it wasn't successful. And I don't ever think of these things as fails. I, that happened right before rehab science. So I've learned, I think of them as learning opportunities and they're a bummer. And, you know, it's hard to get back on the horse again because they uh, are exhausting, right? When something doesn't go well and you put all this time and energy into developing it, it's hard to restart again. And, you know, so I definitely had my fair share of those. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things for me and everybody, people who are listening to this are coming at it from a lot of different backgrounds, but I, uh, for me personally, and where I'm at as a practitioner, I think I wasn't taught a lot about business. Uh, so I've had to learn a lot about marketing and things like that. And, you know, it just was never on my radar when I worked for other people's clinics and things. And I think it's one thing to be able to market yourself in person to people who are coming in to see you because that's sort of natural. You help someone get better. It's sort of like natural marketing, but online, it's a little bit different thing. And so that's been a big area of develop for, development for me of recent years is, uh, not so much on the clinical practice side, but trying to figure out how to be better at sort of online business and stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. It's yeah, especially, yeah, as a trainer, then I started on Instagram, like, Oh, I have to be more than a trader now. I got to figure out how to run a business. So yeah. it's really just taking a day to day, honestly, and just yeah. learning one thing and going with that. For sure. Yeah. You got to take it in small chunks or else you can get kind of bogged down and stressed out. So what would be a good morning routine, maybe something that you do that other desk bound professionals can do to kind of start the day moving well and to reduce their chances of feeling discomfort? Yeah, I mean, I do like to, uh, you know, I like to get up and I don't eat a lot in the mornings. I just feel better that way. I use, inter- I just, I'm not a nutritionist and it's, everybody's got everything, things work different for different people, but I personally, I don't like, to, I do some intermittent fasting stuff, so I don't eat for a while in the morning and I just have water. So my morning routine is just to kind of have some water and just to engage in some sort of basic movements. And it's not always the same thing every day. And I uh, will just like, I'll go up and down the hall and maybe I'll do like some walking lunges. I might just some simple kind of movement sometimes it's kind of I'll do some stretches you know from that gymnastics sort of martial arts background I've got you know it's just kind of I like to just sort of get limbered up a little bit and move in some different planes of motion and a combination of stretches and maybe some body weight type of exercises and I just do a little bit of that and and to be honest I mean especially now when we're stuck at home I kind of just mix that in throughout the day like if all of a sudden I'm been sitting for a while think oh I should do you know I'll just jump up and do 15 single leg squats on each side or do some push-ups and I just kind of mix I, I have a I have a buddy uh, Ben Cormack uh, who has a he calls these movement snacks and I think it's yeah really yeah there's a lot of literature on that coming out yeah I think it's the cool uh, it's a cool idea and that's really what it is it's like just have some movement snacks in the morning throughout the day you know it just helps keep your body you know just I think it helps keep things healthy and yeah so I kind of look at it that way yeah, I'm, I'm going to take a movement snack after we're done here we've been for, for about an hour. But I definitely, I moved this morning and I was like, what do I feel like today? Today, I just did a bit of hips. I, was, I felt like doing shoulders, but my body wanted some hips, so I did that. Yeah. So I might do a little bit of shoulders later, but it, it's really, it doesn't need to be super intricate. Nope. Yeah, I mean, you can just walk. You can just go for a walk. Well, one last question for you here. 
So yeah. if you had the world's attention for one minute, what would you say? <laughs> uh, follow my channel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm just joking. Uh, the world's attention for, geez, man. Um, well, I mean, there's so many things and things that are obviously a lot bigger than what I do. Uh, but I think keeping within the realm of what I actually know something about, I think my whole intention with what I do with rehab science was to help people understand more about pain and the complexity of pain. And I think, you know, if I had everyone's attention for one minute, it would revolve around that topic and just helping people, you know, helping people understand that. You're not your injury, right? What's that? You're not your injury, right? You're not. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just so many of these tenets of pain science that, you know, we could get into the details on, but you know, that, yeah, you're, you're, that pain does not necessarily represent the state of the tissues in your body, that it doesn't necessarily mean something's out of alignment or that you've got some postural problem. It's just that pain is influenced by all these factors, our thoughts, our emotions, our behaviors, how, you know, those movement stacks are a type of behavior, the state, the status of our physical tissues. It's all these things that are coming together that our brain has to make sense of. And I think all too often people in pain have been taught that their pain is because something's wrong with their body. And look, if you've just had a suffered some trauma, then yeah, you sprained your ankle. That's probably the case. But if you've had some, you haven't had a trauma and you've got some sort of chronic pain issue that's been around for longer than three to six months, it's important to know that other factors like your thoughts and emotions and, you know, your social sort of context, your community, how many people you have around supporting you, just life stresses, right? Everybody, there's a lot of stress going on in life in people's lives right now. And I think that can, that can play over into their pain. And so if you're having, I think if you, you know, that's a, a big component. There's a lot of people out there having pain right now who are stuck at home and don't have the ability to access people as easily and get help. And, you know, I think it's really important for people to understand how many of these things can play a role in their pain and to look at things like free apps that you could use for meditation and mindfulness and, you know, take some time for yourself and try to implement some deep breathing and, and, uh, you know, meditate, do some stretching. Like yoga has great research for, you know, pain, I, I think, just understand how complex it is. And if you run into someone, a practitioner who is expresses ultimate certainty, then maybe find someone else. Because if anybody had the right answer all the time, they'd be a billionaire. Because we are not solving chronic pain issues very well. And if you have a chronic pain issue, it's very individual, and no one has the exact right solution for everyone. So you've got to think about all these factors and and uh, be willing to explore, like we've been talking about in this episode, kind of explore your body and find the things that work for you. And, and um, yeah, I think it would kind of revolve around that. I had everyone's attention for one minute. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up meditation and mindfulness because that's huge. Like, you just really need to slow things down, especially when you have some pain. Life moves fast. Just slow it down. And maybe you just need to feel into that sensation so you can develop some strength around it and some mental sharpness around it and just breathe. So I'm really glad you, really glad you brought that up because 
people think, oh, I don't need meditation, mindfulness, but really it's in everything we do. Even sitting here right now during the recording, I'm, I'm focusing on my breathing and just trying to be in this moment here. Yeah, sometimes pain might be telling us something's wrong, you know, not something's wrong with our body, but maybe something's wrong somewhere else. You know, maybe we're too stressed out. Like maybe we were stressed about our career or something like that. And that, look, I've had, I have a, I have a pain issue that is primarily flared up in my right thoracic region by stress. It's about the size of a quarter. It only really comes on by stress. And for a long time, my sole focus was how to get rid of that thing. And while I still think about that, I have realized that that thing comes primarily from stress and maybe I need to learn something from that pain. You know, maybe I need to slow things down more and meditate and be mindful and not be so wrapped up in this fast paced sort of existence that we're all used to. And, you know, so I think listen to your pain too, because maybe it's trying to teach you something. Awesome. So for those listening, definitely, if you are stuck home and need some help, hit up Dr. Tom for an online consultation. Check him out online on Instagram at Rehab Science. He's also got some great programs on his website. So if you have anything else to share with the people where they can connect with you, you can go ahead. Yeah, man, I think that covers it. I uh, also just fired up a YouTube account. Well, I've had it for a while, but have, I've been putting stuff up on it more recently. So you know, sometimes Instagram, you can't uh, be as detailed about certain topics. So if people want more sort of free info, I have that over there too. So, but yeah, appreciate being on here, man. It was fun to have a conversation and always nice to actually hear someone's voice and not just uh, communicate via text. So yeah, it was a pleasure to meet you. Looking forward to having you back sometime soon. Sure, man. Thank you.